Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 62nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Lee Munson. Lee is the founder of Portfolio Wealth Advisors, an independent RA that manages nearly $280 million in assets under management from Albuquerque, New Mexico. What's unique about Lee's practice, though, is that he built it while overcoming a rather scathing article published about him nearly 15 years ago in the New York Observer, in which he was presented as the poster child of the excesses of the 1990s wirehouse at the exact moment that stories on the internet that live forever became a thing. In this episode, we talk in depth about Lee's career path from leaving his early success in the wirehouse world after both the infamous Observer article and the impact of 9-11 and the subsequent recession to the brokerage industry, to working for several years at Charles Schwab as a Schwab private client advisor, before ultimately founding his own solo advisory firm and working over several years of writing on websites like Seeking Alpha and appearing on CNBC and other television media to rebuild his online persona and bring in new clients to grow the firm. We also discuss Lee's own process for serving clients, where he deliberately does not meet with clients on a regular quarterly basis, despite the fact that he manages their portfolios, and instead focuses not on the frequency of communication with clients, but how meaningful each touch is by engaging with them, as he puts it, deeply and unfiltered, whether it's in an in-person meeting once a year or via a long email in between. How Lee justifies a fee schedule that starts at 1.5% on the first $1 million, despite meeting relatively infrequently with clients by trying to delight his clients in other ways instead. And the email folder that he keeps with all the positive feedback he's received from clients as an affirmation of the value the firm is delivering to them. And be certain to listen to the end, where Lee talks about how he's managed to build his practice with everything from active networking at the local community level to regularly appearing on national television despite the fact that he's actually an introvert who relishes the quiet refuge lifestyle of living in New Mexico. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Lee Munson. Welcome, Lee Munson, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, it's great to be here, Michael. I'm I'm looking forward to this episode because I know you, you have had, I think, a a particularly interesting journey in the advisory world from, you know, starting out in the brokerage industry in, in, in the nineties, including what is now a, a somewhat infamous article that the New York observer did on you that like you were literally cast as the epitome of the 1990s stockbroker excess. <laughs> they, they, they called me the swaggering relic. The swaggering relic, because it was 1991, so you were like a relic of the 1990s. It was 2001, so you were a relic of the 1990s. Yeah, the 25-year-old relic. Who wants to be a relic of 25? <laughs> and I know then you went like to all the way to the opposite extreme and, and ended out in a fee-only firm less than 10 years later. And so just you've had a really interesting career and now run a phenomenally profitable lifestyle practice. And so... Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm really excited to have you talk about this whole journey of of what you've been through from a from a 25 year old swaggering relic to the practice that you've that you built today, and and maybe that's a good place to 
to start. Can you just tell us a little bit about like the advisory firm as it exists today and where you are now? Yeah. So my firm is called Portfolio Wealth Advisors. And basically, we run about $280 million in separate accounts, right? We only charge, you know, we're fee only on those assets. I do a very small amount of insurance business, mostly some term life and some things, but I don't even know if it's, I'm not even sure it's 1% of gross revenue at this point. Most of our clients are over 55. I've decided years ago to focus on retirees. A lot of them are in the state of New Mexico, in Oklahoma City, where I have another office, and scattered around the country from San Francisco to New York City. A lot of them are people who worked in highly technical fields. So for instance, you know, we're out here with Los Alamos National Laboratories, Sandia National Laboratories. A lot of people that work at the labs, or a lot of my clients are people who did work at the labs. Okay. There's, there's a reason why that is. It's not just the demographics. I'm, I come off as an extrovert, but if I'm sitting across a conference table from a, a psychiatrist or a therapist, they'll, they'll pick up real quick that I'm secretly an introvert. <laughs> And so that helps me identify and really jive with your typical lab worker. And it's been a wonderful journey. I still, you know, I don't limit myself just to that. I've got some younger people who've inherited wealth. I do a lot of multifamily, so I will handle, you know, the parents of my clients, my baby boomer clients. I'll, you know, it's typical for somebody who says, oh, my kid just got a 401k and I'll do the 401k allocation for them and email it off. And just this Monday, I was helping a 30-year-old adult kid of one of my clients help them fill out their paperwork for their new job, or I should say their first job. And those are the type of things I do. So I do everything and anything. So how many clients is it overall? We probably have at this time... So let me, I'm going to give you the number and then I'm going to tell you how this gets broken down, right? Because those top line numbers don't mean a lot. So we have a roughly 200 households. Okay. Okay. Now I have a business partner, Tracy Miller in Oklahoma. She handles, you know, probably about 80 of those are hers, right? That she, she handles those relationships. The rest are mine. Of those, you know, there's probably a solid... 40 of them that are mostly just investment management only. And so those might be people who might be still working that don't really need a lot. You know, you have people who I get people call me up and just say, Hey, can you just manage my money? Because I know who you are. I trust you. I really don't want to be a bother. I may only have a few hundred thousand, but I just need somebody that can trust. I don't really need the planning part and I'm happy to take those on. And then I have what I would consider more like 50 people that I'm more you know, actively involved in on more of a regular basis. And then there's, there's people that come in and out of it. What people need to realize in the business, and I'll tell you right now, Michael, this whole concept of these quarterly meetings was invented by mutual fund wholesalers and your branch manager trying to get you to cross sell. So what we do is we just do, we just go for that annual review, whether people want it or not. Cause I have people in their seventies who've known me for years and they don't, they don't need to talk to me. Everything's fine. I've earned that business 
when they were in their 60s. I want to be available when people need to talk to me. And by the way, nobody ever calls me when the market goes down. I mean, anybody who's a client of mine will tell you, Lee needs to work at that point. We need not to bother Lee when the market's down. That's where he's having fun and shooting off rounds. So I like to be completely invasive and in people's business when they need me. And then when I'm not, I'm not making up fake meetings so that they can come in and see a report and I can tell them about the market and pie charts and all this garbage. So that, in my opinion, is how, because I know you're going to ask it, you know, how, how is it that you can run all these households and your clients still say they're completely delighted and refer business? And that, I think, is a big secret to my success is get rid of extraneous meetings that we were taught to do at wirehouses and start to work on what matters. And quite frankly, a lot of my clients specifically say, I'm paying you for you not to call me unless there's something that affects my life. Right? Well, I think it's an interesting framing that why do we do so many quarterly meetings? And, you know, I was, I didn't start on the wirehouse side. I started on the, on the life insurance company side, but yeah, too many, it was the same kind of thing. You know, at the end of the day, the, you know, the pressure from my manager to go have regular meetings with clients was basically all about finding new cross-selling opportunities every time. I, I know. Every time I went out to see, to see clients again. Now I'll admit in our advisory firm now, you know, Pinnacle, we're solely on the wealth management side of things. We're doing planning, we're doing investment management. There's there's no there's no products, there's no cross-selling. We're we're we live in a fee-only space. But you know, we still we're not quarterly meetings with most clients, but what we are probably at least two to three times a year. And and I know just in in practice with our clients, we kind of get a similar effect. Like the and I'm curious if this is similar for you. The 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 meetings tend to be a lot more frequent early on in the first few years, A, sometimes there's just literally a lot more to work to do in, in getting them through an initial planning process or helping them get a whole bunch of stuff and things in order. Or sometimes just they need some subset of, of regular meetings to really finish building the trust, right? I find for a lot of clients in that first year or two, you know, they obviously trust us enough because they said yes and came on board, but it sometimes takes them a while before they really really trust to the point that they're willing to let go. But then we hit this crossover point if three to five years in with most clients where when they really get there and, and the trust is clearly there, all of a sudden it's hard to get frequent meetings with them even if you want to. And and they I know, I know. Exact same that eventually they're just like, look, if something's going on that actually matters, call me. And if something's going on in my life that matters, I'll call you. And short of that, we don't need to meet that much. Because there's just nothing going on at this point. I, I would say that that's pretty mirrored in my way. I, I'd like to give some insights of really what's going on so that listeners can understand really what's going on and what you and I are doing. I agree. I'm taking clients on at or near retirement, and it's a massive shift in their life. It's a huge new phase they're going into. So generally that first year, I don't even count the meetings the first year. There's just a lot of them right? Two or three. I, I might be meeting four. Like in the first two years, I might be meeting I might be meeting on average every quarter. We might be meeting with people every couple of weeks for a while, right? 
I don't like to schedule them on those 90 day things. I like to schedule them when they're coming up, like when, when the events are coming up, when they need to do in these little markers that we have. Now, I know I'm working with mostly retired people who are sort of getting into retired, so I'm, I'm a bit specialized in that field. But I think what you said rings true that it's easy for them to say yes. I'm a master salesperson, a master Yoda with that. So I can get anybody to say yes. That isn't what I'm looking for in a client. I'm looking for a client who's going through a major phase, a major change in, in the phase of life, where I could add tremendous value over, say, a two to three year period. And then get them so dialed into their lifestyle, get them so dialed into spending more time on the mountain that they come back to me and say, now the trick is not bugging me. Now the trick is, if you want to keep my business, only speak to me when it really needs to happen. And they have to feel that they can do that. And when they say that, it doesn't mean, oh, great, you know, I have more time to go get more clients. No, 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 no. What that means is you did your job right, right? It means that you, they come to you not because they, nobody comes to an advisor. If somebody comes to me and they're like, what I wanted out of an advisor, Michael, is somebody I can meet every month or every quarter and talk about the markets and talk about the performance and go through your pie charts. I'm just like, stop, get out of my office. <laughs> right? Because you, sir, by the way, only a man would ever say that just to throw us men under the bus. Sure. <laughs> I don't think most women would like actually be caught dead saying something so silly, but you can really tell the people who need help because while they, they're concerned about the performance and markets, they're really looking for somebody that they can trust and somebody who understands what they're going through and somebody who they can say, oh, can I tell you a secretly? I'm like, just say it. And they're like, I don't know how much I really care about markets. I just, I just want to go do X, Y, and Z. Can you help me do that? I tell you, it takes trust for them to just say that where you and I are like, why wouldn't they say that in the first place? Why don't they just walk in saying, hey, I just need somebody to take care of this for me, right? Because they're brainwashed just like we are, right? From Wall Street. Brainwash is a strong word, but let's just keep using it. Well, it's, it's a fair point. I think particularly with retirees, because you know, often if we're working with a retiree, we are not the first financial advisor, or I'll put like financial advisor in air quotes, but like we're, we're not the first advisory person from the financial services industry that <laughs> I've interacted with. Right. right. So someone else may have even set the rhythm with them of the proper way an advisor works with the client is to do quarterly meetings to look at the pie charts. And and that's the expectation that they come in with that that then has to shift. I mean, do you get clients sometimes that maybe that was their prior experience and they start oh, asking like Lee, last- why why aren't we meeting why aren't we meeting more often? Uh no, I don't get the why aren't we meeting more often. I it's my job as an empath to know before they know that we need to meet more often. It's my job to read tea leaves in the voice message, the email, the quick interaction. I have to sense that I go tell Mike Garcia, he's my director of operations and just 10 feet from me. I say, hey, hey. Mr. Smith, I need to have a meeting with Mr. Smith. 
well, why? For what for? You know, it's like, because I sense it. They need something and I want to see them before they realize they need to talk to me. But that's that aside, I did just meet with some people last week and they said that, you know, I said, well, what's this other advisor that I'm telling you to fire? You know, what did they do? Because they were asking me about meetings and I just said, I do an annual review. And they said, well, every quarter, every 90 days, they have this meeting with us and they go over this pie chart. And when we ask if we can retire, they just say, oh yeah, you'll be fine. And I say, you know, how do you feel about that? They're like, we don't want to go over the pie chart. We want to talk about these other things, right? So usually the clients who come to me, they're aware of the futility of the quarterly meeting. And by the way, just so the listeners are clear, we're talking about the quarterly meeting as a concept with quotes around it, meaning a BS meeting where you just go through performance, which absolutely is meaningless, right? My viewpoint of it. And so I think people come here and say, I want to get out of that thing because it's just, you know, first of all, it's an obligation. They have to take time out of their schedule. They really aren't engaged and it only betrays the futility of the relationship. So I say to all those wirehouse guys, please keep having quarterly meetings. So do you ever get concerned at the other end that like, if I'm only seeing my clients once a year for an annual review at some point, like either some of the other advisors going to get their foot in the door or just, you know, they're there. What if they at some point start asking, why am I paying you so much to only see you once a year? Like, I'm interact. Here's the thing. Here's, here's, here's a part that people that let's unearth right now. I can type very, very fast. And my verbose verbosity is not limited to my spoken word. I'm meaning, if, if you've seen my emails that I typed to you and you say, oh yeah, Lee, that sounds great. And then do I write you back? Oh, sure. Or do I write you back a small novella? Right? So you and I know that Lee Munson, when he's going to write you an email and something's on his mind, you're going to get it. So I like to write emails and that's just my thing. Right? And remember, is this is not a self-fulfilling prophecy? I like to write emails. I tend to work with people who are a little bit more introverted, maybe don't always like, you know, face-to-face -face confrontational things. So I'm writing emails all day long. And when it's really humming at my office, you know what you hear? Nothing but the typing of my keyboard. So I'm touching people multiple times throughout the year, personally typing. I also am sending email updates and they're not email updates like, let's talk about your financial future. And have you ever considered a rough conversion? No, it's called notes from the CIO. And people know when they read that, they're like, oh, Lee Munson wrote this email. Like, no, you know, he didn't buy it from somebody. It wasn't written by the ops person. Like, Lee, and, and when Lee Munson writes an email, I don't write it just to show you that I'm doing a touch call. I write it because, oh, I intend you to read it because I don't waste time. So I think that I'm not concerned about that. It's not an issue. If people need attention, I tell them one thing. If you've got a situation, I need to trust you, Mr. Client, that you're going to tell me something hurts. Because for me to be there for you 24-7, to shepherd you through a disaster or some wonderful thing or whatever, 
I can't be wasting a bunch of time, you know, keeping up with appearances. Because as I explained to them, I'm your mercenary. It's off-putting, I know. It's not as friendly. I get it. I'm a nice enough guy. I tell jokes. I'm pretty friendly. But I'm only here to represent the client. And I'll do anything. And I'll go to the end of the earth to do that for them. So they need to know that. So they know that me not sort of just shooting the breeze with them is because I'm dealing with a case that's super important. And when they have something that comes up, they know that they have my full attention. And they know it because it's like, hey, I give them my personal cell phone number. There's not like, there's not a bunch of barriers to get to me. And I find that by putting down the barriers and not having a bunch of gatekeepers, what happens is, is when people actually feel the need, they'll just say like, I just need to call Lee. You know, it's like, why? Well, he's always telling me that if something's up, I need to like give him a buzz so that we can rap about it. And I think I show in those first few years, my attention to detail, how much work I put in. Because I put, I put 90% of the effort into the first year or so. They know that I'm serious when I say that. And I do client events. That's a great way not to have to meet your clients all the time. Is, you know, do a wine event, do the balloon fiesta event. You know, I, do, I like to do events. And I get to see a lot of people. And in those events, they'll come up to me and they'll say, you know, I've been kicking around this idea about da-da-da. And I'm just constantly writing down notes. So I do a big thing, the International Balloon Fiesta every year. It's a lot of fun. Get like 100 people coming, you know, all clients. I don't do, by the way, I don't do prospecting events. Please, waste of time. I do client appreciation events. And out of 100 people, I'll literally get 10 people that will come up to me and kind of let me know, kind of give me the update. And, And that's how I know what's going on, right? You do balloon events? Okay. I live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The largest hot air balloon event on the planet is here in Albuquerque. It's called the the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta. And people come from all around the world to fly their balloons and do racing events and all this stuff. It's the most photo for the last, I don't know, 30 years. It's the most photographed event in the world. It's in my backyard. Like, oh my Lord, really? And, and so it's really easy to get people to come and do it, right? The reason that happens, just so that everybody, all the listeners know, Albuquerque has a unique microclimate that only exists in a few places on the planet. One's in like Africa, one's down south of, like, and so it creates a box in weather climate that's very, very rare on the planet. And so you can, you can launch hundreds of balloons up and down and it has this big box we call it so that's too much information about albuquerque no it's it's interesting i mean you're kind of meeting i don't know i guess like meeting philosophy is sort of this deep one-to-one or some leveraged one-to-many meetings and so that's how you do this combination of contact but i guess i mean is it fair to say like basically it's it's less about the frequency of the contact and more about just trying to make the contacts meaningful when they happen? Is that a fair characterization? I hope so. Or I have some explaining to do why my meetings all go an hour to two hours long. Or else I have to think I just can't keep on topic. Now, that comic relief is is serious. When I'm meeting with somebody, I meet with them until we're done. And I don't keep an eye on... I mean, I have my staff keeps an eye on time and I, I don't try to waste time on these meetings, but I think the deeper the meeting, 
right? So when we have a meeting, for instance, what my planner does, Danny, we're going through the last, I mean, it could be a year, it could be 14 months, it could be three months. Every meaningful planning material email that I send to clients, I also send to the team. And they immediately put that into the plan. They ratify it live as the year goes by. So when we're having a meeting, instead of having this big cathartic thing, the meeting is more of a referendum on all the things we've helped them with throughout the year, all the interactions that we've had. And I'm not here to say, oh, I sent you a birthday card or, oh, I invited you to a white. No, no, no. It's about material things that we did for them, right? And most of the meetings, there's plenty of stuff. So for as little as I meet, I seem to come up with reviews that are prepped for me that say like, you've actually done a lot of stuff for these people over the last year. You've been busy. And, and I think that those meetings, when you're having with people, it's not there to sell something or, or broach a new topic. You want to do that during the year through small sort of micro engagements with people. And, you know, like, for instance, I had a person call me last week and they're retiring from the labs and they had a question about whether they should do some group life insurance post-retirement. Well, the answer was no, they're fine. They didn't need to waste their money doing that. I call, we talk for about 15 minutes. I get it done. I write an email memorializing it, put in a little joke where, your honor, if you ever, you know, the reason why I advise this person, I'm always sort of, I'm always underscoring that I put advice in writing archived, can't go back on it, right? And people love that. Not because they think that I'm, you know, showing how tough I am, and that I'm willing to put my reputation on my advice, but it, it really makes them relieved that I feel strong enough to make a cheeky joke about it, that they don't have to think about it. It's like, eh, they put a stamp of approval on it. He had to think about this for a little while before he just says that and memorialize it in email. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relax. But yeah, you're right. So you have big meetings and you have big meaningful meetings. You keep in contact with people. You make sure that throughout the year, you have somewhat of a calendar of smaller interactions that get the job done quickly, which clients love when you do it quickly. And you always take an opportunity, like a good detective, like a good CIA operative, when people ask you something in an email or something like that, just dig a little deeper. Believe me, you'll find something. And what you find is you find how to really do some meaningful work and your client is delighted. And my goal my secret goal that I've never, I never really tell anybody, but I'm telling you for the first time today is that my sort of personal ego boosting has nothing to do with anybody but me is I try to delight people so much in everything I do. I'm always trying to get one email a day minimum from a client writing back to say, oh, thank you. This is so helpful. That was so, that meeting was so good. Usually it's a recap email that's so good, by the way. And I collect those like little trophies. And I have a thing in my email folder that says positive feedback. That is what fuels me. That's what's kept me in the biz for 20 years and my nose clean, right? And I think, I think advisors should think about that. I think they should think about how can you delight them so hardcore that they'll actually email you back and say, oh, thank you. Right? Because what else, what else do we have in this business? Right? Because money isn't going to, money can only buy so much. So, what do you do that is delighting people so much aside from apparently the most 
thoroughly comprehensive meeting recap emails ever. What are you doing that drives this? Like, is it just the depth of client communication that you got with, you know, engineering oriented clients that often revel in that kind of deep communication? Well, I try to do magic tricks. So I try to take a very complicated subject and I say, hey, I have a cocktail napkin and I have an extra thick Sharpie. My clients know if they're listening to that, oh God, he says that all the time. I just get sick of hearing it. Your cocktail napkin and your, your metaphorical cocktail napkin and your metaphorical big tip Sharpie. What I do is I take a very complex subject and I boil it down. But I think what people like is that I'm very free to a fault of providing context for people, right? I give them the context of why I'm giving them this advice. The other thing that I think delights them is that I have something called credibility. Now, we all think that everybody in the business who doesn't steal money and, and you know, comes to work and does a good job, that they have credibility. I would say, let me just give you fair warning. No, you don't. Credibility comes with empathizing with people and understanding what they really want to get. So the typical anecdotal thing is the mortgage in retirement. We know this, right? Uh, mathematically, as long as your portfolio outearns your borrowing costs. I know, I know. Your 10-year cycle, you'll make a spread. Blah. Yeah, I got that spreadsheet. I know how to use a spreadsheet. And by the way, I actually do the spreadsheet on my own. Rarely do I ever show my work to clients. Let me give everybody some advice who's listening. I know how hard you worked on that spreadsheet. I know the time and, and the pride of ownership that spreadsheet, but do this. Figure out what the spreadsheet output, right? Figure out what it says and communicate that in English, in words to your client. Don't ever show them the spreadsheet, right? That's just a, that's just to feed your ego. Or it's because you're so new in the business, you feel you have to show it to the client to show them that you're not wrong. And I, I don't know what to say about that. I was once young in the business. I'm not sure if I have, I'm just like, you know, well, and I would think, particularly with a lot of engineer clients, like I have to admit, I'm, I'm kind of surprised you don't get a bunch of clients that are like, now, now show us the power. No, engineers are the one that are the first people you don't show it to, right? Because they're paying you not to, to go to work when they see you. You follow me? And that's what people don't get. You know, people think you have to show Los Alamos National Laboratory people all this high flute and fancy stuff. Dude, they're on their off time, right? Like. They had enough math by 5 p.m. <laughs> they just want to know, like, can I go ski now and not have to go back to work? <laughs> it's like, yes. They're like, thank you. Did you do the numbers? Yes. Are you confident? Yes. Are you setting an expectation where the bar is so low you can just step over it? Yes. Perfect. I'm gone. Thank you. Right? So I think what you have to do is you have to... So when you're talking about the mortgage thing, this is a good example. I think this is a good learning opportunity for listeners is that... You need to know what the answer is. You need to know the magnitude of it. It's like, well, could this save a hundred, two hundred thousand bucks and save the plan, or is this just you know in the thousands of dollars and is nebulous because you know you're calculating out ten, fifteen years? What you have to do is you have to tell people, listen, here's the deal: you're either going to sleep at night or you're not. If I tell you to take the mortgage, it's because the plan requires you to do it, and you don't have enough assets not to. If I say it's a choice, right, then we have to talk about 
how much money are we really talking about here? You know, it's the, like delaying social security. What's the magnitude? And so that's what deepens my relationships with people because I'm constantly saying, you know, the two things that in our business on the investment management side that we don't know, we don't know the timing of corrections and we don't know the magnitude you know, of, of market volatility. What I try to do is I say, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a sense of the magnitude of making these personal decisions. And I just met with a, a woman today who's thinking about putting 500000 into a new home instead of saving it because she has a, a daughter who's a special needs child. And, you know, they have to find a sustain, you know, the child's going to be living with her probably for the rest of her life. And I have to make decisions on, can I retire this woman at 60 and just have her give me the money? Or do we need to back this out to 64 or 65 so her daughter can live with her in a comfortable environment? So, you know what I put in my email? I say, listen, you need to do this for your family, right? I'll figure out over the next 10 or 12 years how to try to not have you work to 65. And I told her, do I like this? No. Do I like having to count on something? She say that she's in a job where she could get a, you know, a big bonus for, for doing something that maybe hasn't happened yet. Do I like counting chickens before they hatch? No. But her daughter is absolutely the centerpiece of her life, right? So I have to ride, I have to transparently speak in my inside voice outside to the client and I have to tell them what I'm thinking. My curse and my talent, Michael, is that I'm unfiltered. And so when I tell people unfiltered things, it cuts real close to everybody's bone who's involved. And while that honesty can be off-putting at times, heck, sometimes I miss the mark. But I'm willing to take the risk of putting my foot in my mouth, which I'm an old hat on, because nine times out of 10, the client says, God, you know, nobody has the courage to tell me this. I don't have the courage to tell it to myself. I told her, well, get the courage to tell your husband that you guys are moving, right? So I frame it. And I think that's how you really delight people. And here's the thing. Younger advisors, I think, are afraid to just let it rip because they're thinking, well, Lee Munson's 42. What, what does he know about being 62? I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been doing this for 20 years. But I think as a young person, you have to take risks with your career. And I think you have to take risks to say, just envision yourself here. Think about if, if this was your situation, right? Easier said than done, right? But, that, but if you want to know my secret sauce of, of how do I engage people, I just say, engage deeply, engage unfiltered, and just constantly be going to the ends of the earth to figure out a solution. And don't be afraid of breaking eggs right? You're going to break less things than the clients are. And they're, they're rooting for you. My clients are my cheerleaders, right? They, they know that I'm trying as hard as I can to, to come up with solutions. And, you know, they're oftentimes they're patient with me. So with all this, with this kind of meeting structure and this, you know, lots of upfronts, because that's just often what it takes with clients, especially for time transitions, and then you meeting frequency trails off once they become established clients. What does your fee structure look like? Like, do you charge a bigger upfront because you got more work upfront, and then a lower 
fee later? Like, how do you how do you structure fees for all of this? No, I just do a simple AUM fee. I don't even stack it. You know, under a million, the rack rates one and a half percent all in asset based pricing, and over a million, you know, it's one point one all in asset based pricing, and it's not stacked. It's either one or the other. You know, you had nine hundred thousand. You send me a couple hundred grand, you're at 1.5, now you're at 1.1, 1, 1, period, for the whole, the whole nine yards. Because I don't want to deal with the complexity. You think clients want to deal with that crap? I don't. So why would I put clients? That's why I do asset-based pricing. And for those who don't know what that means, a lot of the business now, you pay for the trades. I actually pay my custodian so many basis points which I'm not going to say because it's sort of a trade secret, but I pay them so many, because it's low, so many basis points, and they cover all the expenses. So your your AUM fee is actually a combination of like literally your advisory fee and then this underlying asset fee for all the trading, which is built into one fee for client. Right. And you know why I do that? I'll tell you why I do that. Because heaven help you. Or anybody else, and I don't mean you, Michael, I mean the proverbial you listeners out there in the business, that you hesitate on pulling the trigger on a flash crash or a recession or, you know, whatever it is, melt up, melt down, because you're worried about those $50,000 IRAs and you're thinking, oh, those transaction fees, right? It's like, just take it away. Now, it costs me a bit of my revenue for it. I pay a pretty penny to have TD Ameritrade do that. And I pay that premium so that as the investment manager, because I don't use it damn folks. I mean, I'm, I'm a capital markets expert, right? And that's another thing, you know, you got to have confidence. You know, if you can't run capital markets, I'm not sure you should be in the business. I know you're probably going to disagree with that, Michael, and I understand why. But I believe that I don't want to have anything in the back of my head saying, stop, wait, how do the fees affect? What you're doing? No, I just want to. I just want to go and blow, right? I don't like externalities, so it's a big expense. I also don't agree with. And now I'm going to have no friends, but I also don't really buy the the whole non-transaction fee thing. You're just selling clients up the river. You're charging. You know, instead of me paying a few basis points, you're charging them a quarter more in twelve v ones. And then we have these new marketplaces. You know, I had somebody from S&P Spiders try to sell me. I have a sort of no wholesaler policy, so they that ended quickly. But their whole pitch was, oh, hey, we have all these free-to-trade ETFs. It's like, yeah, but you can't promise me that it's going to be here. I mean, it was just a few weeks ago, right? Like Vanguard got booted off that system from TD, and now Spiders are here. You know, it's just like, this is all just a rat race in a game. I'm not here to make a wholesaler rich. I'm not here to help Wall Street. I'm only here to help one person, the client in front of me. So what I've done is I've taken a lot of my revenue and I've invested in getting myself padded, a, a, little, a little cage around me that says no externalities, right? Focus on the work. Don't let them in to your office. They want to buy you a steak dinner, remind them you're a vegan, right? You, you want to go for this due diligence meeting, buddy? I can pay for my own first class tickets wherever I want, whenever I want. I'm booked, right? And that type, that's, I'm not here to be cocky. I'm here to be very direct. And I did that when I wasn't making a lot of money. And boy, did it hurt back then, right? Yeah. It really hurt. 
but I stuck with it because I knew eventually, I didn't know it was going to happen so quickly for me, but I knew eventually this would have the payoff of sticking to your guns, always take the moral high ground, don't let Wall Street skim off your clients, especially when you're not taking part of the skim. And it worked. I, I think, I think, I think people out there just need to have more faith in themselves. And I'm talking about the advisors. They need to have more faith in themselves. So maybe that's actually a good theme to my follow-up question then. So I, I've got to ask this. You start at 1.5% up to a million. You're at 1.1 over a million. You know, the classic discussion is the typical advisory fee is 1%. So how do you justify 1.5? I don't have to justify it. So you think I need to. And I'm, I'm making a point about that, by the way. Um, I'm not here to work with small people, right? My firm is set up to deal with a million and up. My time is valuable. And if you want to go work with somebody who's lesser, then you can pay lesser fee. If you want to work with the very best and you think that's me, well, then have at it. I think that, that first of all, <laughs> I use dimensional funds. I don't charge ticket prices, right? There's no other garbage fees. All the planning included. My undying attention included. 24-7 access to me included. And it's high touch, right? So first of all, I'm not seeing $300,000 accounts being charged a point, right? Fair, fair point. We, we talk about the 1% a lot without acknowledging like, even by some of the benchmarking studies, it's it's maybe one percent at a million. It's not necessarily one percent at two hundred grand, five hundred grand. What are you What are you going to do if you have three or four hundred thousand dollars in Albuquerque, New Mexico? You're going to go to Edward Jones at one point five plus twelve B ones plus they're going to sell you a loaded up annuity plus plus plus. What are you going to do? You're going to go to a strip mall. You're going to go see you know an annuity salesman who's going to tell you how you can only make money and never lose, right? And I have certain carnal knowledge about how things work out here. And I also, <laughs> I'm not passing on the expenses of a TAMP. I manage my own money. So people come to me, like, okay, I talked to a lady. Oh God, it's like everybody I talked to yesterday. I just, it's just been a busy week. I did speak to a prospective client or prospect and she's paying like half of what I charge, right? I mean, literally half. Her concern is that the trust company that she's working with, they don't do anything other than manage the money and they're not really doing it the way she knows they're just kind of fakers, right? She wanted the dimensional factor investing and they're just like, oh, here's two dimensional funds right next to all of our long short crap and our junk bonds and all that. You know, we don't, we, we just really want to make it self evident to any CFA that looks at your statement, we have no investment philosophy, right? So with that, how am I supposed to compete? I don't. I get people who have do-it-yourself accounts at Vanguard who come and pay me 1% to manage their money. And I use a lot of index. I use index funds. People say, well, why would they do that? They're doing it for you. Because they need somebody they can trust. How much is that worth? To some people, it's worth 1.5%. Right? Now, the truth be known, you know, you get some people pretty close to stuff. Depending on what people's needs, you can negotiate that price a little bit. Right. If they come in on a referral, maybe they're you know associated with a larger client. 
I might give them the break point price, you know. The best way to get your fees lowered at my firm is be referred by a rich client, right? Because <laughs> I'm 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 gonna I'm generally more than not, you know, don't quote me on this, Your Honor, SEC auditor listening, but more often than not, what what usually will happen if somebody comes in through a referral, I, I pass along the rate of the main household that did that. Oh true. Yeah, yeah. So like if 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 someone literally, if someone refers and they're over that million dollar break point, so they're at that lower fee, then that lower fee just kind of carries over to their. Yeah. Yeah. So the person with the half a million, I might give them the million dollar fee. Right. And, and that's, that's fine. I mean, I make plenty of money, so I'll be okay. Right. But I told my staff, you know, we, we have a, we got a corporate getaway in, in Scottsdale. Just beautiful. If anybody needs a corporate getaway, let me give you the advice. Go to the Hotel Valley Ho in Scottsdale, Arizona. And instead of getting the really, if you have a small staff of like, you know, eight or less, instead of getting the conference room and spending all that money, just get the presidential suite, stay in it on the second floor, and then have everybody meet there. It's actually cheaper and so much more awesome. Let me tell you. So, Michael, see what I just did? I told a story about my lifestyle. I spend more time in the mountains. When I convey that type of story to a client, they know they're in the right place, right? Yeah. So do you do you at least set minimums to to kind of manage all the the upfront and the amount that you're charging for any particular client? Oh, you know, sort of like right after I emailed you months ago, how I thought that was BS. I started doing that just to let you know, just just for your own self edification, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> there were minimums, but now there are minimums. Basically, about a day after I hit sent on that email that I sent you, and so so people know what I'm talking about. Michael did a great podcast with somebody smart and exciting because you should all listen to his podcasts, all of them. And they were talking about minimums and this and that. And I said, oh, you know, this is all wrong. You know, I, I work in a smaller community, and and that's just snobbish. Okay, so. So what changed? So what changed? Number one, it's hard for me to say no, right, to a new client. It's easy for me to say no to a client who's overspending their money and it's going to get messed up. When somebody comes to me and says, I need your help, nobody will help me. Oh, yeah, there's a reason why. <laughs> it's, it's hard for me. Like, I just want to help them because who else in my community is going to help them? They've got no one. I mean, I'm being serious. They have no one. There's no one, in, in my opinion, in this area that's going to help them. They won't fleece them, right? So, and I'm not trying to indict or speak badly about anybody in my business. I'm talking about smaller accounts, right? Because you walk into Edward Jones, they're real clear. Oh, it's half a million and up. Okay, snobs. You just keep saying that. For me, the problem was, is I would take them on as ongoing clients, Right? And then oddly enough, I would charge them less money. What was that about? So what I do is just say, hey, listen, if you're going to be kind of under that half million mark, A, you either need to be younger, like in your maybe mid to late 40s, and you'll be at a million soon, right? Ah, piece of cake. You know, do I really hold to that million minimum? Not if you're 48, have 400,000, a high paying job, and you just, you just, you want to work with me? Please. I always tell you, you'll be at a million in a few years. The hard thing is when you see somebody who's retired has a sub $500,000 account and really needs to rock 
more like a five or six percent withdrawal rate, whereas you and I both know is treacherous. Right, that ain't gonna work. And, and, yeah, it's not gonna. Work. I mean, it could work if you're in your seventies. Well, or, or if you get a really lucky bull market, like it could happen. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a little dicey. It's a little dicey. It's a little dicey. So, with those people, you know, the price is the price, right? But what I've also learned since I hit send on that email, I told the staff. In January, I mean, just like last month in January, I said, guys, I need to be open and honest with you. I have an addiction and I'm addicted to saying yes. I'm addicted to closing. I've never seen a person I didn't want to help. And it's not helping our firm and it's going to crush us. So the team came together and helped me, right? They said, well, Lee, let's start doing this. You need to start saying on your radio spots and saying, we cater to million and up, right? So that way, only people that really, really, really need your help will call versus the person with 100,000 bucks and, you know, Lee wants to close, right? So that's step one. So the smaller accounts only come because they really need my assistance. And, and for, for whatever reason, they believe only I can help or that they feel they can get along with me. Number two, we hold to our 1.5% for those smaller accounts so that we're profitable on those and it doesn't hurt the overhead of the firm and make the firm more unstable in their revenues. Very important element. Number three, I have done some soul searching when people come in and I've started to help people, but not have them as an ongoing client. And that's really been huge. It satisfies my need because sometimes I just need to tell people, okay, you're in dire straits. I need you to take this money. I need you to put it over at Vanguard, right? And, you know, put it in X, Y, and Z, whatever I feel is the right thing to do for the situation. Or, you know, in some cases, just put it in a CD and don't spend any of it, right? And I give that free advice. And I probably have a couple times a month people come in. And I spend a couple hours with them, start to finish, get them all set up, and then it's, and it's free, right? And so I get what I want. Like I said, I usually do. I get what I want because I help them. I feel satisfied. I felt like I was an asset to my community. I felt I did something. But I can't let my current clientele be disadvantaged because of my desire to bend over backwards for people who need help, right? So it's an interesting framing to say that, you know, we're, we're, we'll have a minimum for ongoing clients, but look, if you, if you need some, if you've got some questions, you need some one-off help, we will work with you on a one-off basis. So you're not, you're not just flat out turning them away, but you're not, not permanently taking up some of your limited ongoing client capacity by taking them on below a minimum. And, and people will say, well, no, 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 because they'll solve their problems and some other advisor will get them. It's like, I don't care. Like they, they, they'll come back, you know, and, and when it's younger people, I'm always like, Hey, listen, just go to Vanguard, buy this thing, VT for the next $250,000. And when you get there, call me now, little do they know, I'll just keep saying, well, do that again until you get to a half million, then call me. But having a little credibility like that, you know, cause that's, I think that's what a lot of people need to hear. Right. So I think depending on where you are, you have to decide you want to be, okay, Michael, it's really super easy for me to be on my high horse because I'm very successful. You know, my wife always, I always tell my wife, 
why am I so happy? Why am I so pleased? And she said, because you're very successful, right? It's like, you know, it's like if, if you have a frown, just take a $100 bill and wipe it on your mouth and I'll smile. So from that perspective, versus somebody who's 25 years old and just got into the business, it's easy for me to sit on my high horse and say, oh, I spend a few hours a week on pro bono hard luck cases. It's a pleasure. Of course it is, right? I think that that's why I have such a problem with the aggregator model. Everybody must sell. Everybody must do M&A. Organic growth is for sissies. It's like I work my butt off organically to build up a quarter billion dollar practice, not just so that I could sit around with a nice lifestyle, was so that I could pick and choose who I wanted, which by the way is not a quaint idea. That started years ago. And also I can sit and I can just clear the schedule and just help somebody with no personal gain, right? And that makes me a better advisor for my high net worth clients, right? And it also gives me a little humility, which I definitely need. And it gives me a view of how the other 99% live. And that makes, again, that makes me a better advisor. If all you have are 5 million and up clients, you don't really know how the world works. I think every advisor needs a breadth of AUM. I'm not saying you can't specialize. I like to specialize in, you know, out here it's, it's sort of like the one to 3 million thing, right? That's kind of, it's just where the, it's just where the cards fall out here. But I like to have things on the tails, so to speak, because I learn things about it. And I learn things about the world that I can bring back to my typical million to 3 million retired lab workers, you know, that type of thing. Well, classic. Yeah. Well, we all, right. We all learn when we do something outside of our central comfort zone, that that's sort of, that's where that happens. So whether that's, you know, pushing new skills or learning new information or just literally working with clients that are not squarely in your standard domain, like that's, that's where the learning happens. Yeah. And so, and you got to do that. And sometimes that requires taking on a $50,000 disaster because uh, it's like the right thing to do. And I just tell myself, this will make you a better advisor. This will remind you how fortunate you are and you're going to touch this person and you're going to help them. And that's kind of the, what I leave behind. Right. And that's why, that's why I do all that work at the university. That's why I'm constantly mentoring kids and spending all this time doing that because it, it's, you know, what's my legacy? A big bank account, please. You know, I don't have a huge staff. I'm not empire building to feed my ego. I'm not seeking out all the, the scalability and we'll be at a $3 billion firm because somehow that's supposed to help clients. It's, it doesn't just help yourself. And what legacy do I have other than knowing that there are a lot of people who will say, hey, Lee Munson really helped me. And then that's why I work with all these young people. So that, you know, I mean, now I have people who are hitting 30, which my God, no, no wonder I got to 42. But, you know, you get a 30 year old who comes back to you and say, hey, I'm successful I'm in the business. I'm running money at a hedge fund. I'm in New York. You know, I'm doing whatever I'm doing. And they say, 
thank you for telling me things that nobody else told me. You told me the truth. And I went and ran with it. And now I'm gamefully employed in a great business, making good money. And you are this little person that pushed that little pebble down the hill of which now is a giant boulder. And I think, and, and just as sort of a PSA, a, you know, public service announcement, I think that as soon as you get into the business, the first thing you need to do as a younger advisor is to take on a student, take on an intern. Don't worry that you don't know what the hell you're doing. You think I knew what the hell I was doing when I was in the business at 22, 23 years old? No, but you act as if, and when I was in the business, you know, I, I took on cold callers that were my age because it kept me honest about what I knew. And I think that's another secret of my success. So, so you're kind of un, unapologetically working toward a lifestyle practice and not necessarily trying to build a big, huge firm, like fair, fair characterization. Yeah. Let me just say this. I'm okay with you referring to it as a lifestyle practice because I know you and I know what you mean. I don't particularly like that term because I work my ass off all the time. To me, when I hear the word lifestyle practice, I think of somebody who's lazy, that it's all about them and not the client, and they're not really willing to go to the end of the earth. They just want to do the minimum to collect their fee. And, and so that, to me, that's what lifestyle means. So I'm pigeonholing that word in a very specific context. To me, and, and I know what you mean, lifestyle, all you're saying is, Lee, are you looking, for instance, to hire more staff around you? Or are you looking to... Yeah, more advisors. Yeah, more advisors, more locations. I'm the prior. I'd rather have better and better skilled, more senior talent around me I don't really, I'm not looking to have more advisors copy me. Cause let me tell you, when I was made, that mold was shattered in a billion pieces. People come for me and me alone, but with me, they get iterations of me. They get, what if Lee Munson was, did operations? God, wouldn't that be a rock star? Yes. His name is Michael Garcia. He works for me. What if Lee was like the para planner? What if we could find a Lee, the planner, Lee, the trip? Oh, Danny Pendleton. There you go. Right? So when you're buying me, the other roles that I have, they're still Lee-like in their passion and vigor. It's just that, yeah. I mean, my rule in my office, you know, because we kind of shut it down at four because we're on mountain time. And I tell Mike, I said, listen, if you're going to go to the gym today and work out, you can leave at 3.30, right? Take the half hour. My gift to you, stay healthy. You know, if, if people need time off, I'm not sitting there like, well, let's add up all your PTO. And like, you know, like, it's like, listen, this is a little ship and I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the little captain here. We're all in it together. One person, one vote. So that's how I roll. It's not a loose management style. It's a little flatter of a management style. And I think a lot of people are afraid of that and I get it. I think that my goal was to have a profitable firm rather than growth. I tried to do that, Michael, in the early years. I, I tried to, I left Schwab. I got sued on a contract dispute. I won, of course. A lot of people from private client at Schwab, you know, this is like 08, 09, 010, 
huge exodus out once I showed people that you can actually stand up to Uncle Chuck and just walk away, which was quite a surprise to everybody. And I thought that they were all going to come and join my firm. I was just going to be the guy who's on CNBC talking markets, kind of running an internal tamp. And I was going to make money off the back of other advisors. And I kept beating my head against the wall doing that, you know, get advisor here, advisor there. It was really taking me away from my core clientele who'd come with me, right? Who followed me, who believed in me. And I wasn't doing them a service in those years because I thought because of my ego, I thought that my purpose now that I was independent was to, oh, forget the actual thing that I was doing for clients. Now I'm going to be a business owner and I'm going to just run this business and, and forget about my life's work as a CFA and a CFP. And luckily, a dude saved my life. And his name was John Fury. I think it's called a, do you know John Fury? Advisors? Yeah, advisor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So I was working with my, my, at the time, getting together with my partner, Tracy M. Miller, and he was putting the deal together for us. And, you know, you go to Scottsdale and you chit chat, you're a big old chick. By the way, whatever he asked for it, just pay it. It's always like, oh my God, it's how much? Just ride it. You'll, you'll never miss the money. And he told me one-on-one, I was in the conference room just with him. He says, you cannot make money off the back of other advisors. And it wasn't a life-shaping experience, let me tell you. It was a life-changing experience. And then I realized, I realized what I was going to have to do for the rest of my career. I was going to have to do the work. I was going to have to commit to clients. And that was how it was going to fly, for better or for worse, right? Big money or no money? I'm curious then, like, is there, a, is there an alternative or, or, or better label you would give it than lifestyle practice? Because, I mean, I'm, you know, it's a fair point. I'm kind of doing the math here at, like, a quarter of a billion dollars <laughs> on our management fee schedules. Lifestyle, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Like, fee, fee schedule is 1.1 to 1.5 on a quarter billion dollars with two or three staff members. So it's it's not hard to do the math that there's a lot of money moving around in in this practice that you build around yourself so you know it's it's phenomenally profitable you work your ass off as you noted so like what what would you what would you call this you're the thought leader you're the most famous thought leader in our industry i mean my so god michael <laughs> Wait, that, that was why I agreed to do this podcast. Oh, God, you can come up with something other than lifestyle. Practice. I was, I was, was, I was like, supposed to give you the name. More, All right, we'll work you on it. You know more about this industry than every single person on the planet. You don't have, you're supposed, oh, geez, I'm so <laughs> deflated. I just, I, I had you built up to this godlike dude. No, but I'm, I'm the terrible one that comes up with the names. I'm still the one that thought it would be really cool to call tech augmented human advisors, the cyborg advisors. And I'm the only one that likes, okay, yeah, I'm the only one like cyborg. So yeah, you know, yeah, we've I, called it, you know, bionic advice and digital advice, like everything except the name I gave it. Apparently my names are a little bit dirty. You need to get somebody to wordsmith some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, I'm just joking about this. You, you, you are the thought leader <laughs> of the industry right now. That's not a joke, but everything else was. Here's how I describe it internally. And here's how I describe it. What I'm doing Okay, and this will help us get to the word. What I'm doing is I'm choosing a strategy where I'm collecting higher skilled and thus higher on the pay scale support staff around me 
and premium vendors around me and paying a premium to save time around me rather than try to hire a bunch more salespeople, right? So you're just you're you're just trying to essentially delegate and leverage yourself up as much as possible. Yes, and 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 really get the staff to become rock stars in what they do by showing them how a rock star does it in what I do. So I would simply say, why don't we just call it an organic practice versus an inorganic practice? Because we all use those terms already. I don't believe that somebody hiring more advisors is organic simply because they didn't do a merger or acquisition. To me, I still label that inorganic. And that's hard for people to realize because nobody wants to say we're hiring more advisors, but we're really just, and listen, I don't begrudge people who do this, right? I get, like, I have some physicians as clients and they'll come to me and say, oh, I don't want to sell anybody else. It's, a, it's a, like, I don't want to do clinical. By the way, clinical means like when you're meeting with people, right? So that's kind of the jargon. They say like, I don't want to do any more than two clinical days a week. I just, I just, I'm burned out. It's like, well, what do you want to do? Well, I want to get some of these young docs together. I want to try and change, you know, change medicine. And, and they'll, they'll talk about their lifestyle. But what they're really saying is that eh, I want to move on. I want to, I need another challenge and I no longer really want to work in medicine. I want to sort of help other people in medicine. And I love that. I'm glad they're doing it. That's not my path, right? I have so much to give and such a desire to give it. I want to do two things. Primarily, I want to give it to the clients because it's just getting that email saying, thank you. That was really helpful. I'm really glad that we have you. That, I can't buy that. It's, it's worth more than money. And number two, Helping young people come up in the business, helping them at that college level, where you might help them with their first job at Pinnacle, right? That's not what I do, right? I'm not helping them with their first job. I'm helping them like get that first job. I'm helping them like wise up and say, I think you need to go back to pre-med, dude. Trust me, right? Or like, you're just having a bad semester. You don't have to go work on Wall Street. You know, one C won't, won't kill your life. So that's how I kind of view it. But I don't like lifestyle because to me, a lifestyle practice is some guy with 10 million bucks who plays golf three times a week and doesn't really like handle their business. And I take clients away from people like that, right? So, so in the context of this organic practice, I'm going to try to run with this label. Yeah, maybe we could like, we could like redo that term. Yeah. So in the context of this organic practice, right, we're you know, organic growth is about driving growth off of, off of you. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about just where the growth has come? You know, I know you went out on your own roughly 10 years ago, 10 years later, quarter of a billion dollars under management, which is a hell of a big number for you going out there and, and, and getting clients. So can you talk about just like, what is, what is marketing and sales for you? Like where, where do these people come from? Particularly since I'm cognizant, like you're, you're not building in New York City or San Francisco where 
there's just lots and lots of money kind of flowing around all over the place. You're in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I would say that, and first, let me, let me just, let me just be clear. I've got a real chip on my shoulder at a quarter bill. I feel I'll, I'll never be anything until I reach a half or something like that. I know how silly that sounds, but from my perspective, I'm always shocked when my AUM is more than other people. And I'm, I feel bad about myself often because I don't have a half a billion under management. And I know how weird that sounds, but you have to understand I'm very driven. I'm very ambitious and I hate, and, and you've had, I think you've discussed this. Actually, I know you've discussed it. Is AUM really a measure of the man, right? And I can tell you that last fall, I did some significant soul searching. And without really getting into the whole context, I'll tell you, I was writing notes because I incessantly write notes to myself. And I wrote down for the first time in, in 19 and three quarters of a year. And I meant myself. I'm not being sexist. I was talking to myself. I said, AUM does not make the man. I was also listening to some George Michael at the time, and there's a great line, but I'm not going to get into that, right? You know, it does not make the man. And I'm glad I realized that at, I'm glad I realized that after I raised the quarter billion. So let's get into that. I leave Schwab. Oh my God. I leave January 1st, 2008. What a moron. Well, it was good timing. It would have been harder to, would have been harder to leave in January 2009, right? Or, or maybe it would have been easier because there were lots of people in motion by January 2009. Let's just go with that. You left, you, left, you left at the peak when the market was going up. What were you thinking leaving when markets were so good? <laughs> it was just the time that I needed to leave Schwab, right? It, it just, it had degraded. They had degraded the Schwab private client practice and so you were, so you were on the SPC side, not, not, not like you weren't out in branches. Yeah. You were in the one of the central uh, SPC locations. I was a Schwab private client rep in the branch in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I wasn't, I wasn't over at Camelback in, in, in Phoenix. So I was their client facing. I raised the money back then in those early days. We gave the advice, right? And and with conjunction with your internal, but that was back when I could kind of run things on my own. Plus, I was a CFP. I think I. would you know, by that time, I was sort of like working on or you know, already had the CFA and my internals loved it because I would just sort of do the work for them or they would, you know, they, they knew what I was getting at. The problem there, and listen, I'm not here to throw Schwab under the bus. He already threw me under the bus. He already tried to bankrupt me and ruin my career. So I, I don't need, and he's a billionaire. He's doing fine, right? Well, Bettinger's, that's a whole other issue. But what they were trying to do was they specifically were trying to do two things. One, not have a broker centric model, which I get, isn't that what Morgan Stanley is trying to do with protocol? They're like, ah, no, you're all employees. It's like, dude, that's not a new idea. That's how Schwab always ran. That's why wall street used to love them because their percentage of comp as profits was pretty low. Right. Right. Because, because they were paying people mostly on flat salary plus bonuses, but not, you know, percentage of revenue, the way that the traditional warehouse model did. That's a lie, but we have to keep saying <laughs> that. You damn well did get paid off of your business, but it was called phantom revenue. And it's sort of like, if you sold a swab fund versus a Vanguard, they pay you the same thing, but you got paid to convert. You got paid to convert. And we knew exactly how much it went. It was somewhere between about eight to 12 basis points. So it didn't matter what they said your bonus was about. They would redo the comp plans every three to six months. But when it came down to it, I look at my AUM back then and I divide it and do some math. And I'm like, 
base salary plus about eight to 12 basis points. And when I did it more, I got more of that. When it came down, it went down on that. So don't ever let anybody try to like fool you and say, oh no, we just do this or that. It's like, that's fine. Let, let them have their little thing and, and, and that's fine because it, it is what it is. Well, I mean, ultimately, like anybody that runs a large scale business, like you're always doing the math, you know, here's the gross revenue of what we charge. Here's our staff overhead as a percentage of compensation. So if you charge in basis points, all, all staff ultimately comes down to a percentage of, of you know, some basis point ratio of, of the assets, just because that's how you tune the salaries and the bonus and the rest. Absolutely. I, I think it's always hard because every, you know, people in the business are very myopic. We're always very sort of self-centered in some way. You always feel that just all the money should just go to you and you never think about everything around. You know, you're not thinking about, well, Schwab does advertise literally everywhere all the time. How much would that, you know, so despite my outbursts, I have mellowed with age and I have a lot of respect for how they do stuff. You know, I, I got a lot of respect for, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean, too, and how they handled their business. So I, I think that in the end, what happened was I left there working at Schwab. The, the assets aren't portable, right? Like, right. So you, so you had to make a cold, clean yeah, break. Yeah, and some people came over. It was very lackluster. You know, the market was crazy. You know, Schwab really fought back. You know, they weren't part of protocol or anything like that. They fought because of the clients, the few clients that did follow you, or they fought just because like well, you 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 left the firm and didn't leave the business entirely. Exactly. So they were just pursuing it as a I mean, I can't take anything, but probably about thirty million came over. You know, not nothing. But it, it wasn't really it wasn't even what I thought would come over. Because you can't solicit, they have to find you. Luckily, it's Albuquerque. They can find you, right? Right. I was just saying, you're you're in a you're in a small town with a not totally common name. They can probably yeah, find you. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I was sort of findable already on the internet, so it wasn't a big deal. But half the people came over who I thought would come over, maybe a third. So even I was shocked about how many people didn't come over. And some people came over later, and you know it. You know, it kind of hurts your feelings because you thought you had a connection with somebody and, and it doesn't. And it's because some people want that corporato thing. The people who came over were really not Schwab clients in the first place. They were, but they're, they like sort of fell off the apple cart at Schwab because they got ripped off by a wirehouse and they just wanted to see what was going on. Then they had this nice young guy in his 20s, Lee Munson, like, oh, this is, this is the nice, more ethical dude that I was looking to get. Right. So those people came over because in the postmortem, which took about 10 years to figure out the people who stayed, they were the type of people who like work for a corporation, you know, that kind of upright God in country. Hey, if, if a corporation said it, it must be good for us. Right. And so, and, and that's why those places still exist. My clientele now are a little bit more skeptical and cynical. Right. And so I have a very eclectic book. I hope it's clear to everybody I'm kind of an eclectic person, right? So your book reflects you. If you let it, Michael, you have to let your book reflect you. That's my advice. So I start marketing. So here's the sad part. That Observer article, which was just this embarrassing thing that I shot my mouth out one night after a night of drinking with the buddy of my desk partner at Bear Stearns during the crack, during the dot-com thing where nobody's making any money, everybody's just depressed. I was the, I'm notable only because I was the first person in our business to have a smash and grab. By the way, historically, the Observer had written like smash and grab, yellow 
journalism things all the time. I didn't know this because I just didn't read it. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't really know. I'd never read The Observer. I didn't know anything about it. I thought the guy was writing for Vanity Fair and we were going to work on a screenplay or something like that. <laughs> so I was like, oh, gee. Now, I should have been shooting my mouth out and saying like rude things. No, but I didn't really think that it was going to go anywhere. And I didn't understand what The Observer was, right? And I had a lot of people afterwards call me. I actually had the assistant DA call me and she said, I got like raked over the coals by this guy. I won't even say his name because it's just, because he's a loser. And so I found out, oh, you dummy. That's what they do. So so it's sort of like when you're 25 and a journalist calls you, let me give people some advice. Read the last two years of everything they wrote. Right. (laughs) Just, just to get a little bit of a yeah, heads up. Yeah, just to get a heads up because if I had read the last – because there was no inter- – there wasn't really the internet back then. I mean, you know, it wasn't right. – so if I had read the last 10 pieces by this guy, I'd have been like, oh. you know, I'm just going to call him up and say, you know, whatever we're talking about, like, please don't – like, I, we're, just, we're just hanging out, right? Just, like, chill on that. So the problem was when you typed in my name, that was the thing that came up. Or my lawsuit with Schwab. Like, oh, God. Oh, just like literally when you, you, you go on your own. And anybody Googles you and all they find is either Munson versus Schwab or this reformer article full of, you know, the, the ultimate caricature of a 1990s broker, except it was an actual biography. Right, of right. Like, like I made it to page six in the New York Post when this happened. Like my dad's in Honolulu. No, he's in Maui on the beach reading the, like the Maui Gazette or whatever. And they have a little AP thing. It's like, and he faxed it to me. He says, what the hell is like, it's like on the top column, it starts like Martha Stewart indicted on, you know, arrested for insider trading. And then Bear Stearns broker Lee Munson fired after, you know, suffering from like foot and mouth disease or something like that. And I'm just like, it's like, I'm like, how is this on the AP news? You know, cause you're thinking this will blow. You know, I talked to some great attorneys at the time. I'm saying, what the hell is going on? They're like, you're in the eye of the storm. It'll be Okay. In a week, no, and it was good advice. He said, in a couple of weeks, nobody's going to remember that. Plus, I had tons of job offers from little chop shops because they were like, this kid's got some brass cojones. Oh, right. So, 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 tr- so true to form for the broker culture, the actual quintessential brokerage firm loved it and wanted to give you a job because of right. this. Right. Including all the places, nine stops off the LIE. So, of course, I'm mortified by this. I'm just like, what have I done? I'm going to just change my life and do good. Right. I mean, it was just like the wake up call of all wake up calls. And then the industry just gives me the worst negative feedback on that. Right. So how do you even land a job at Schwab at the time? Like was the internet just not out there enough that the hiring manager at Schwab didn't catch this until after you got hired? No, they, they, they don't care, man. They knew I could sell and they needed somebody out in the middle of nowhere. You could sell. Right. And there, there wasn't like, I didn't break any law. You know, I just said something stupid and I wasn't fired as allowed to resign. My U5 has always been clean. Always, always, always. It was just, you know, I just said some embarrassing things and that was it. But it was something that I had to, to hide out for 10 years. It was the worst thing of being ashamed of yourself for years and years and years over something regarding your youth over something that people before me had done and just lost their job or had to switch firms or, you know, sort of like lesson learned. Don't, you know, you're not supposed to talk to reporters without talking to your compliance officer. And, and it was just a lesson learned. The problem was, is that it was the start of the internet. And so if you go back in time, I'm the first 
trace on the internet of that happening. Whereas I know for a fact it happened all the time. Mine just landed there. And because it was so old, it always would come up to the top. Right. Right. So, so what was the, like, what was the, was there a goal and plan around this? Like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna mark it in local Albuquerque. No, where I, I, I thought I'd it, it head on. What I was going to do is, you know, back in the day, you know, you write other articles, you start writing so that it, it pushes that down, which by the way, it never did because it was too popular. You couldn't, you couldn't even knock it down on the SEO. Ranking. No, I mean, I still will meet every once in a while they're like oh my god you are lee munson i'm like why do you say that they're like you're that guy all those years i'm like yeah 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 yeah. i know i know i was also 25 like <laughs> you know you never did anything silly <laughs> you know like don't do anything silly it could be on facebook forever so and, and we don't have laws like they do in europe called you know the right to be forgotten believe me i cry every time i read about that so here's what i need to say so the first thing I realized is that that Observer article isn't good. And there's nothing else on the internet other than that, right? Why? Because I've been laying low for years, right? Like, I just, because of that thing. Except the problem is when you're laying low, that means nothing else populates about you on the internet. So it continues to be the only thing people find when they search for your name. <laughs> exactly. and and nobody. It's just, it's a brave new world, right? And I'm not thinking about that. It's just, you know, I, I'd moved on with my life at that point. And I worked at Schwab where I didn't really have to think about it. So eventually, though, some of the higher ups at Schwab picked up on that thing and kind of knew about it. And then you start walking around with the target on your back, right? And so I go out on my own. I realize it's an issue. And so I thought, I'll start writing pieces. I always want to be a writer and do analysis as a CFA. And I thought, I'm just going to really get into it. So I started publishing on the website and then I found Seeking Alpha. How oh, here's the biggest, I don't write for them anymore, but let me just give them the biggest plug of their life. I start writing for Seeking Alpha back in 08. I used to like to trade preferreds and I used to like to trade. Let's just get right down to it. I used to trade individual securities before I kind of realized that we needed to get a little bit more passive tilt to everything. And I got good feedback and it was, it had great SEO at the time. And so it started, you know, for like a week, if I wrote a great article, lots of people read it for like a week or two, it would be the number one hit versus the Observer article. And then a couple of weeks later, the Observer would creep back up because, you know, everybody's looking, I was like, oh, well, what's this thing below here? Whoa, that's Lee Munson. You know, it's that kind of thing. So it was this constant battle of not just writing stuff, but writing heartbreaking pieces of staggering genius just to get a two-week respite of not having it be the number one thing. And we're not talking about getting it off the first page of Google. Right, you're just trying to get it to be second or third. Yes. And you know what's happening during all this? Karma is helping me, not hurting me. The universe is helping me. It's telling me, dude, the only way that you will be set free is to work and is to become a brilliant practitioner in your business versus a slick caricature of a man. And so that's what I did. 
and I put my head down and I kept writing the pieces and I kept analyzing things and I kept improving myself as a person. And I did it in the most humble of humble ways. And by December of 08, by doing, you know, talks at Rotary and, you know, networking and being on the New Mexico State Planning Council, you know, just working, you know, I probably got up to, you know, 40, 50 million in assets. And then I got my big break. And that's when I got a call on my voicemail. I come in and it's like, this is, <laughs> I will protect her name. <laughs> This is such and such from CNBC. We'd like to talk to you and see if we can put you on today. Call us back at blah, blah, blah. Of course, the first thing that comes to my mind. <laughs> is they, they want to do a follow-up. It's been like eight to ten years since the original article. Well, I've been blackmailed twice by journalists. I won't say what magazines they were at. They were, well, one's out of business. Good for them. But I actually had two journalists in the mid-aughts blackmail me and say, if you don't do a follow-up article, we're going to call your branch manager. How do you like that? So can you imagine having that happen? Just in case your branch managers never Googled you. Yeah, I'm sort of like, <laughs> I kind of want to say, well, you go for it, girl, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, there is, I, I, get, I get the dynamic, but there is a, a piece of like, you're blackmailing me over the number one hit on my name. Google. <laughs> I know. So it's kind of like, like, I'm not sure. It's sort of like, wait a minute. Do I call the FBI to tell them how funny this is? Or that you know, you're kind of like, wait a minute. Is this, maybe they're just the dumbest journalist in the business. And so, you know, I, you know. Well, you know, it, it, internet was early. They figured maybe not everybody. Was <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah right, 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 right. Yeah. My, my clients, none of my clients were stupid, right? They, they know what's going on. They, they, and you know, remember, I'm out in the Southwest. I'm out here in the Wild West. I'm out here where you have cowboys. You have, you know, this is an old Spanish colony that was built upon Native American culture. And on top of that is cowboy culture. So we're a trilogy. We're these three cultures. People come out here to be forgotten. People come out here to have privacy. And people come out here like Oppenheimer came out here because this was the furthest place on the planet where he could focus and make that bomb and save the world. Right. And was that part of your reason for, for going yes. out there? Like you, you wanted, you wanted to disappear a little. Well, I, I went to school out here to St. John's college, great books program. So I spent, you know, years in Santa Fe. My wife is from Las Cruces. So I did after I moved out here after 9-11. I, I, the, the Observe article didn't necessarily kick me out of New York. 9-11 kicked me out of New York. I just couldn't handle it at that point. But I just, you know, New Mexico is a wonderful, lovely place. And, but it was a place that I could disappear. And it's a place where if a client does look at that, they say, hey, I was young and maybe I used to hit the bottle a little hard in my early days and said a lot of stuff. This poor guy got written up on. But, you know, people change. And we're out here in New Mexico where you have to be a little bit tolerant of things, right? And so it was a great place for me to find refuge because I think everybody who comes to New Mexico in their deep core is trying to find refuge. That's why we have more PhDs per capita than any place else on the planet. It's not just the labs. And that's why we have more artists than any place, right? Because people who want to get lost in the work, right? And not have 
society continually be doing a referendum on them. And you know, if you go to Santa Fe, you 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 know, fifty miles from here, that is the culture. That is the culture. So this was the perfect place for me to do it. So CNBC calls and I call my wife and she says, do not call them back. Do not talk. I said, well, let's just see what they want. Cause like, I have my own firm now. Like, what are they going to do? I mean, it's the number one hit. What are you going to like? Yeah. They're going to, they're going to, they can't block him out of your boss. You're self-employed now. <laughs> you can't make it more than number one. Is there like, could, you know, at the time you couldn't pin it. It's like, well, when you search Lee Munson, it's going to pin this article. So I call them up and they're like, we love your piece on Citigroup preferred stocks. And we want you to come on closing bell with Maria Bartiromo. Talk about it. They called you from a Seeking yes. Alpha article. Seeking Alpha. So anybody who works for Seeking Alpha, they know this story. But it's like, like, tell people that when you want them to write for free, right? I know they pay people now. They did in the past. So I basically, I couldn't do it that day. I didn't know what an insert studio was. I didn't know how to be on TV. I didn't know any of this. So luckily, I'd already made a donation to the Santa Fe Film Festival earlier that summer, you know, to try to like, you know, network and all this stuff. I call up this person, that person. Within a couple hours, I'm talking to the only, I'm talking to the GM of the only insert studio in Albuquerque, which is Franz Yoakum. That man saved my life. Franz, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And he said, here's the deal. You need what's called the insert studio. Call him back and say these things. And I did. And they said, okay, well, you miss a gap here, but are you doing anything on December 26th? <laughs> and of course I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, <laughs> I'm available. And that was my first hit was closing bell. And by the way, the piece was good. The writing was good. My points were good. And, you know, perhaps do those people over there know who I am. Maybe. Yeah. Do they know that it would make interesting TV to have me do that? Yeah. But that is my life. That is who I am. And that is all I have to sell. So I did the thing. It was the most stressful two minutes of my life. And I, I still, you know, it's on YouTube. You can go look at it, you know, December, just put Lee Munson, December 26, 2008, CNBC. And there's, there I am looking like I just got out of high school and I nailed it. And those magical words, you know, the words when the segment ends and the producer says, kind of shocked. That was great. We're going to have you on again. Is that okay? And you're like, Yes. You know, it's like the highest pitched. I, yes. I, I guess I'm not that yeah, busy. Um, okay. Yeah. Let me know. Like, yeah. Let me know what you have. You know, I think that was what I said. You know, like, yeah, yeah. That, that sounds good. You know, just give me a buzz. You know, and I'm like, oh my God. And then I became a very loyal person when they needed to get a hit or when a producer called and said, we need you. We just, somebody ditched out. Can you be over there in two hours? It's like, yes, I'm, I'm already in the car driving. I became an expert in that craft. I learned everything I could. I remember going to, and then I started flying to New York so I could be on the floor of the stock exchange and do the interviews there. I remember Dave Darcy. You know Dave Darcy? He used to be this like chief strategist over at Morgan Stanley. Anyway, ancient history. But I remember being on it with Dave and I got up to the makeup booth. If you've ever been on the floor, you know, you walk up these little like dangerous death ladder and they do makeup on this little sort of catwalk thing. And there's Dave Darst at the time, like, you know, this high up strategist for Morgan Stanley. He's like, Lee Munson. I'm like, oh God, those words just, you're supposed to be happy when people say your name, right? And he said, 
I read your article. Oh, God. He said, on a short-term case for deflation. I'm like, really? He says, I loved it. You made great points. And I was just like, in shock. Dave Darce read one of my pieces, right? That I worked so hard. It wasn't the one from The Observer, right? Because, I mean, this guy's just as crazy as I am. He's just, he's just 20 years older, and they didn't have the internet when he was doing crazy things, right? Of course, he's also a dude that goes to Burning Man every year. But we did the interview. He was so nice to me. We're walking out, and I said, Dave, can I talk to you for a second? He said, sure. I said, I don't know how I got here, man. I just, I got lucky. Can you tell me how I can stay here? I mean, you know, on TV. He did. And he gave me some really good advice. He told me a lot of stuff that I'm not going to repeat, but let me just put it this way. He taught me, he already had achieved success. He told me the secrets of the media thing freely, just passing it along, right? He's already got his, he's got, he, he's got it made. And that's when I realized, hey, Wall Street's a small street. and It doesn't have to be a bad street. It doesn't have to be a bad street. And it was the same thing with Maria. I remember like she would advise me. She said, you're doing good. Just engage it, you know, grab it. Larry Kudlow, a big champion of mine. I still do his radio show. But I would go out there two hours early. I don't have a, see, I don't have a PR guy. So a lot of times people don't know. When you do TV appearances, a lot of times people are going with a PR agent. The PR agent sets up the interview because you've got a new book out or new fun. And they handle you. I never had a PR guy until I wrote a book and, and I had one for a little bit. So I was my own PR guy, which is very rare. So I would just sort of walk through security. I would just go to Inglewood, New Jersey. I'd just be wandering around unchauffeured because they're not thinking that way. They're not like, well, guests just aren't arriving without their PR person to shovel them in the green room. Like it never dawned on them that somebody who's actually on the list, they just let in and then you know, I take a beeline towards the green room and then I like duck out and I just go work the cubicles in my car. Da, da, da. And I remember seeing Kudlow. I was going to be on his show. God only knows how I got on that show because producers move around and they, they invite you. And he was sitting, oh, Larry, man, he's like a king. The dude's amazing. He was sitting out in the lobby talking to his, his senior producer and he recognizes Lee Munson. Oh my God, he knows who I am. Right. And he said, I like your style. You just keep doing it. And I said, what's that? You know, I always had these dumb questions like, what is that? And he's like, you take your point and you, you grab it like a pit bull and don't let go. This is what they're telling me. And the rest is history on that. That helped me market. It helped me become credible. It helped put into context the Observer article. Do you now literally get business? Because people say like, I... I saw you on CNBC. I want you to, to manage my money. Like, is it that kind of a thing? And if any of those clients who are still current clients are listening to me, forgive me. Most of them are by bad clients. They're not the right clients. They're chasing hot money. But yes, for many... Well, that's why. That's part of why I was wondering. I would think like the CNBC listener is usually not an investor in a DFA funds allocation. No, 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 no. And, and I was doing crazy stuff back then. Not crazy, but I was, I was a little bit more... I traded more back then. But... I would. And there was a time after 08 where everybody wants to fire their broker and I took advantage of that, right? You know, I mean, it, I took advantage of that market. So I did get some of those people and that was the way I raised money for a little while. But then I realized they're the wrong people. It's not a good match. Now, 
all the while I'm still doing writing for Seeking Alpha. I get a gig and I don't pay a dime writing for the Albuquerque Business Journal, you know, bizjournals.com, that company. And I do this Money 101 and I'm, I'm super busy. I'm everywhere. I'm in New York. I'm in Albuquerque. Again, rotary speech circuit, right? Somebody's opening an envelope. I will be there to talk, right? You know, at no networking event, not attending, right? I'm hustling. And I start working over at UNM and, and I start doing talks there. And I get some clients, you know, these sort of public things that I do. But the Money 101 thing, which I did for maybe three years, that was great for getting local business. The, the TV thing gives you credibility. So if somebody hears you, they're thinking about you, they go on the internet and they see all these CNBC or, you know, Fox business interviews. And they're like, ah, well, if he's on TV, he's obviously trustworthy. So it was more about the credibility you get from the TV than, than actually the clients you got. And, I, and I'll tell you directly why. from the TV. It's not that somebody on TV is a good or bad person. It's because when they looked at the interview, they could see that I had a point of view. They saw that I was articulate and they saw that I could hold my ground. And also they saw that, you know, when C- and the reason I don't do CNBC anymore is because I-, I got tired of getting canceled on and they always put me in the octagon fighting with other people. You know, Fox Business is great because I know a lot of the producers. And they let me just go on solo and do my thing, right? Just like chat. But people could see that nobody was going to get one up on me in an argument. I always did my homework because they were the most important things to me. It wasn't just some throwaway interview because I, I, I hadn't had 100 hits yet. I wasn't that experienced. So I really do my research. So people thought when they saw these things, they're like, this guy really knows his stuff. And that's what made me memorable. And you'd have like hosts afterwards to say, hey, man, thanks for doing your homework before getting on here. And of course, I'm like, do some people not? And then I thought, oh, okay, I, I think I know why I'm on here. It wasn't because of my past. It's because I do my homework. And I'm, yeah, I'm younger, good looking, and I got passion. I can't sit still. So it was just different. Yes, you're an animated guest for, yeah, for exactly. TV. So I, it was a hard road. It was I, one client at a time. A lot of mistakes were made. But I did the business and I got clients, the bulk of them, through networking with other professionals like lawyers and CPAs. I did. There wasn't one source. I wish I could tell you more than anything, Michael, that I had this little secret thing and then all the referrals started coming in. It was just constant, constant working every single thing. Just, just just for years. And then I started doing local radio. I do a little spot for three and a half minutes on Thursday mornings on KKOB, the Bob Clark show, which happens to be the highest ranking anything in New Mexico. And so for people who say radio is dead, it's like, I know, but if you're the last person in America selling buggy whips, you're going to do just fine. Right? So I started doing that kind of unsuccessfully at first. I, I quit after a year and, and took like six months off, which kind of pissed them off and came back. But I started getting good leads from that. And then, as you know, after so long, people just start calling you and say, hey, my friend told me about you. Or I saw you on Yahoo Finance. Right? I, I do a lot of stuff with Yahoo Finance and do the little web stuff. 
or I saw you on Fox Biz, or I saw you on CNBC, or I saw you at that Rotom meeting, or I read your thing on Seeking Alpha, or I heard you on radio, or, or I love those Business 101 articles that you write, even though I haven't written one in two years, but people just presume I'm still doing it and they just haven't been keeping up on it. So what I can tell young people out there is that you got to try different stuff and you got to just keep doing it. And you know, one of my biggest clients, I got through the paladin referral system thing 10 years ago whatever you know and i did that and that was fine for a year or two i stopped doing it just because it just dried up but you can't worry and have anxiety if you're a younger advisor out there that something you did that got you a few clients isn't working anymore don't try to make it work if it's not doing it just move on to do something else and never freak out to say oh that one great client who gave me all these referrals, who really kind of changed my life, I got them some way that, that doesn't work anymore. One other thing I've got to ask about this be, before we wrap up. You, you made a comment earlier that notwithstanding all of this, the, the, you know, from the Observer article to writing to doing TV, you, know, you made the comment that you're an introvert. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you can kind of expand on that, right? The, the, the quintessential stereotype of the advisor, particularly the advisor who's good at growth, is entirely about the, ex, the, the extrovert that's really good at going to networking meetings and meeting lots of people and driving referrals and all of that. And, and so, I don't know, like, are, are, you, are you really that introverted? I guess is almost what I want to... Not, not, not to the general public. I told you that was a secret. I was just telling everybody today. It's a rare moment, a rare months in secret. Here's what I mean by this, and, and I get it. 99% of people who rush into me are going to say, Lee Munson's an extrovert. He needs a stage. He wants to perform. He wants to give, give, give. If you walk up and start chatting him up, you'll want to leave sooner than he does. I understand that. I understand that on the surface... I'm this outgoing guy. Well, I am a badass and I'm engaged in everything that I do. But you have to understand that anybody who's going to be on television regularly, whenever, you wear your heart on your sleeve. And I'm an only child. When I go up to Taos to go ski, to the chagrin of people that I know up there, I don't like to be around other people. I like to be alone. And in my office, I don't have interns anymore because I've told the staff, I said, guys, I want to be alone. And I want to be left alone. And I have a nice big war room with all my little talismans and my little movie posters and little knickknackery. And it's my own special little space, my little sanctuary. And it's not so much a respite area, but it's my, my more natural thing. Because I have to sit in deep thought, thinking about what's going on with my clients and envisioning myself as them and what might work for them, project. And that is very much something that I have to turn inward for. And that is where my best work comes from. Now, in the delivery of it, you know, it's sort of like, hey, you know, I get real chatty. 
I love people. I like to hang around, but that's just betraying how kind of a loner I am and how, you know, and so I think, and I, and I, I bring that up because I think for those people out there who have a complex personality profile, don't lose hope. When you do the disc assessment and you're darn well at D and everybody knows it, but then you're confused by answer some things that are so polar opposite. And you're thinking, what's going on here? Why can't I be a pure dominator? Why is it that I have so much empathy for people? Why is it that I, I want to be the life of the party, but secretly, if I don't get kind of like when I walk into a big room and do this stuff, the first thing I want to do is just go hide in the corner and be invisible. And I have to force myself not to, because what I find out is that despite my nature, when I engage people, it's a lot of fun. It's not my natural disposition. I have to warm that up. That's why I say I'm kind of secretly at the core, a bit of an introvert. And I only express that extroverted side because it's good for me. So what's your advice for other introverts that struggle with this? Make believe. Act as if. Don't let the fact that you're inward define you. And and on the, the flip side, if you're kind of a brash, great salesperson, and you feel that you have more to offer, don't let the industry say, you'll always just be a hunter. You, you'll never do any real work. We'll have people behind you run the money and we'll have people behind you doing the plans. You just go out there and sell, sell, sell and just be fat and happy. No, be a renaissance person, right? Do it all. Experience all these things in life. And that's my advice to, to people because some of the best people in the business are people who are not like me, that don't have belief in themselves. They don't have confidence. They don't think that they can, can really bring that Lee Munson experience to think, oh, hell yes, you can. You know why? Because you did the work. You know your stuff. You know more. You're educated. You get your CFP. You know this business. Now go out and be loud and proud, right? And so maybe it's just about confidence. I don't know. So... I'll, I'll admit that was was the path for me. I'm I'm very much a, an introvert as well. You know, you do any of those Myers Briggs type systems. Like I score a very strong introvert, and and it's the same kind of dynamic. You know, I'm a I'm an introvert that does a lot of professional speaking, and it's it's the same sort of thing. Like when I'm out speaking, you know, I've also got Alphabet Soup after my name, and I've studied the hell out of it, and I know I know my stuff. I'm confident that I know I know my stuff, and so you know, ask me to give a speech about the industry. I'm happy to talk in front of a thousand people. Put me in a cocktail party with twenty, and I will be the one sitting in the corner, furthest from the noise, probably not talking to anyone unless someone is nice enough to have mercy and come talk to me. We're the exact same opposite. Let me just stop you there, Michael. When I'm in the little intimate things, like client intimate things, I really just want to hang out. I really just want to. That's why I don't do a bunch of prospecting events. Because I'm just not comfortable with it. The larger the crowd, or on TV, oh my God, just let it roll. So when I, when I went to like the CFA annual forecast <laughs> dinner last week, I'm on fire. You know, it's 500 people in the room. I bought two tables. By the way, I buy two tables and I populate it not with 
with clients. I populate it with the students at, at UNM, right? People should do that more. Like give the kids a break. So I think it's funny you ask me why it's so funny that, that I think of myself as an introvert. But when I look at you, because I've seen you talk, I've seen you around, I think it's hilarious that you're sort of saying, well, I'm an introvert too. It's like, oh, please. You know that nobody believes you or me. We'll, 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 have, a, we'll have a quiet little club love that. in the corner someplace. Could we meet in often and not have to talk much? Because I'm in. <laughs> if, if, if I don't have to really share my feelings and I could just like check a box to say that we attended the introvert, the secret introvert meeting, I'd love to do that. Maybe you could come to Tawa sometime and we could ride the chairlift together and not speak to each other, ski down, and then just keep doing that. Well, yeah, we'll, have, well, we'll start organizing like introverts club gatherings at, at conferences, but no one has to talk to anyone else. It's a great gathering. But no, it's, it's something you overcome. <laughs> So as we as we come to the end here, you know, this is a podcast about success, and and you know, one of the things that always comes up is that you know, success and what we're working towards just means different things to different people. You know, sometimes it's financially driven, sometimes it's personally driven, sometimes it's legacy driven. So you built this amazing organic practice, and I'm curious, and you know, I've had this interesting journey over the past fifteen or twenty years of your career. So as you as you look forward from here, how do you define success for yourself? I I used to define success all wrong. How much money, how much AUM. I think I define success in my positive feedback email folder. I define success in having young people tell me that they got that first job based on me yelling at them about their crappy resume. And I think that I define success as being somebody that my community trusts and that I can reinvest and pay forward and be part of my community in a more deeper way and share my knowledge. And that's, that's how I define it. And again, it's a lot easier to do that once you become successful. But I think when you do have the opportunity to have some professional success, I, I think at that point, that's when you start needing to redefine what it means. I was so hell-bent on becoming you know, a man that once I got there, I realized that that's great, but I'm a pragmatist and I thought I, I, I got to change it up, right? I've got to redefine this and it's really about how many people did I touch? How many, how many lives did I make better how many clients are, are saying to me, I'm really getting to do what I want to do because you helped me. Ugh, my heart of flutters, right? And that's, and that's where it's at. And you know what? I wish I'd known that earlier. I think I could have been just as successful with that attitude. And I think I was my own worst enemy. I think that if I were 25 all over, I would have loved to have taken that attitude. And you know, clients who've known me for a long time will probably say, he's BSing you, Michael. He's always cared about the clients. But I don't remember it that way. I always remember just the desire to achieve and to, to, to have success. Would you have been able to convince 25-year-old you about that if you hadn't had the Observer article and all the things that drove you thereafter from it? That 25-year-old me, if it wasn't for the Observer article, he would have been another New York stockbroker statistic 
a disgusting piece of human wreckage, a person who only felt that their only purpose in life was the buying and selling of others. And just know by 42, that guy without the Observer article, oh, I know people like that. I, I still know some of my cohorts from those days. And they're not people that I necessarily want to interact with, talk with. They're people who, quite frankly, I feel bad for. I feel bad that they didn't lose their way, you know, 10 years ago and were able to rebuild. So in the ultimate moment of irony, does that mean that the writer that burned you may have actually saved you? Yes, but he was still a it's fair. <laughs> he wasn't doing it to save you. So can I, if I saw, okay. So if I saw him on the street, would I still want to punch him out? No. If I saw him on the street now, honestly, if, if that, I can say his name, his name's George Gurley. And he did me a favor through his own self-interest. And I think he and I were both kidding ourselves about what we were doing. And it did save my life. And that's what maturity is all about, is about looking at the big mistakes in your life and realizing that there's a higher path for you and that that had to happen or else you could never be where you are today. And I remember a great, a great money manager who helped me and mentored me for a little while. His name was Rob Raccoon. He still has a great practice up in Santa Fe and whatnot. He said, Lee, the way you know that you've achieved something in your own moral self, your soul, is when you can put a copy of that article, frame it, and put it on your desk and look at it every day. I haven't got, I don't really get to look at it every day. And I don't really like to talk about it. This is the first time I've really kind of talked about it in some time. But I'm technically at that point, right? And I've, and the main thing is that you have to forgive yourself. And you have to remember that Remember what put you in the position and what put me in that situation to be so pathetic as to pull a stunt like that. The context was very simple. I was at Bear Stearns. I was depressed. I hated everything about the business, you know, transactional brokerage firm. I didn't feel I was helping anybody. I felt that it was disgusting culture, which it was, and that I wanted to shoot myself in the foot. So I could move on with my life and I aimed incorrectly and hit my head. And that's about it, right? It's amazing how the, the journeys we take end up defining us sometimes. So thank God. Thank God for bad PR sometimes. Well, thank you for joining us and sharing the whole story and, and journey over the past 20 years or so. It's a, it's a pretty amazing path. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that it got so serious at the end with Kleenex and, you know, spiritual awakening, but that, that honestly is really where it does it. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It's my pleasure. Keep doing this. It's a great asset to the whole industry, what you're doing here. And I'm not just trying to give you a plug, but I enjoy them. I tell other people in the business about them. And Obviously, this will be one of the greatest ones you've ever done, but I think they're all great and I use them. I use them as a great tool to learn new stuff. So I don't, you can never be too successful or too sure of yourself not to keep listening. Have a wonderful day. Well, thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? 
check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.